0: Hello, listeners. This is Gerard Robinson. Welcome back to another wonderful session where I am, of course, joined by my co-host, Kara, who has always got interesting things to say, interesting stories. And when it's time to meet with our guest, she's just got the best questions. So I'm always glad to be in her shadow.
1: Oh, How are you doing? Gerard, my shadow. I'm, I'm doing well. That's, um, thank you. It's, um, it's a nice day out here. We've got a great guest coming up today who is just, um, I'm, I'm really, I always get excited for our guests. I'm really, this person's going to talk to us about, about her own personal history. We're going to talk about cancel culture, which is, is, is something, because you know, Gerard, I'm not a millennial, but um, I'm interested in I'm these shocked. millennials and their new cancel culture. Um, no, just, uh, it's a good day because here we are, we get to do the learning curve together and that makes me happy. So what's going on in your world?
0: Well, are you still in the bunker? The undisclosed one. I'm
1: out of the bunker. I'm out of the bunker. The bunker was in fact Washington, DC. A a really nice hotel, I might add. Cheers to the people at the rigs. Um, no, I am I am back home. I am still, I will say this, Gerard. I talk about my kids on this show. My kids have been at what we affectionately call Grandma Camp in Michigan for the past week and a half without me. And don't tell them, but I really, really miss them. The house is quiet and empty, and I thought it would be amazing, but after 24 hours, I wanted those kiddos back. So sorry to disappoint. (laughs)
0: That's where I am. Wow. Well, your kids, when they hear this at some point, will like, oh, mom really cares about us after all of this.
1: They'd be like, why do we need to listen to mom talk more? We don't need to listen to mom say anything else. All she does is yap at us all day long. So maybe when they're older, you know, maybe.
0: Got it. Um, we took a trip to DC as well. Um, this weekend. We went to see a former babysitter of ours who is now married and has got a wonderful son and to uh, reconnect with my former uh, research assistant uh, who her and her husband are doing well. So we had a quick trip to D.C., spent time, ate good food and came back. So I'm sure we passed each other on the highway. There but D.C. is still one of my favorite places.
1: Of course, I didn't drive to D.C., silly billy. No way. I, I mean, oh, I can't I didn't right. drive in Newton, Massachusetts without hitting something. Don't, you know,
0: <laughs> no, I forgot about the uh, private jet that you own. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, it's not good, Gerard. It's not good. No. So what's on your radar this week in terms of our uh, our stories?
0: Well, speaking of D.C., uh, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal, in fact, today from J.J. McCorvey, and the title is Student Loan Payment Suspension, What oh. the Extension Means for Borrowers. So- let me just state up front that I am one of the 43 million people in the United States who owe cumulatively 1.6 trillion uh, right in student debt. I am right, there
2: with, you. You're right am there with you.
0: You are right there with me. All okay, of my
1: graduate education was free, and I am there with you. That's a lot of debt, my friend.
0: It's funny because I. I uh, walked away debt-free undergrad because I worked sometimes 40 hours a week. It took me seven years, but I came out debt-free. I ended up picking mine up more in the, in the master's program and, and a few other things. So I'm part of that $1.6 And what the um, education department decided to do with support, of course, of uh, President Biden is they decided to extend the mor- moratorium on payment. So now, what does that mean for all of us? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Most loans uh, in the United States, they've decided to put a pause on since March 13th, 2020. And that uh, pause was extended at the end of 2020. It was extended again by President Biden through executive action until next month, September 30th. So of course, we're coming up on that. Millions of people still are having a hard time in the economy. So they decided to actually um, pause payments and extend the moratorium until January 31st, 2020. So for that, uh, many people are right now saying hooray. But who's actually included in that? And we've got to be very careful because all of a sudden people think that's my loan. Well, it's some. So only federal loans are eligible for the pause extension. And that includes um Stafford Loans, Grad Plus, and Consolidated Loans. Now, most loans that originated under the Federal Family Education Loan, which was discontinued in 2010, that's a whole other story. They're now owned by private lenders, and therefore, if you have that loan, you're, you're ineligible. But loans in default within that loan I just mentioned uh, have been made eligible for a pause on payments and interest. So if you fall in that category, uh, take a look with your, and talk to your lender. Also last month, the Biden administration via the Department of Education canceled, get this 500 million in student debt, owned by students who were involved with the now defunct ITT technical institute. So the Biden administration is moving ahead to try to do what they can to help, you know, all of us who find ourselves in an interesting spot. But one group of people we often overlook or don't even consider when we think about uh, debt borrowers or owners are people age 60 and older. You'd be surprised to know that in 2015, people 60 and older had 66.7 billion in student loans. That was up 700% from 2005. That's according to data from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Nearly 40% of those who have federal loans who are 65 and older are in default, nearly 40% compared to 17% of those who are 49 and younger. So the good news, uh, it's going to be a pause. We're going to move that forward. The challenge is when you have $1.6 trillion in student debt, that is larger than credit card debt and auto debt combined. There are many people on, in Congress, some on my side of the fence, some on your side of the fence politically, who frankly do not think that people are ever going to pay back some of their debt. So we've got to figure out how that will work out in the long term. But for now, there's at least breathing room until January 31st, 2020.
1: I mean, it's amazing. This staggering numbers. I have to share just a little nugget here. I mean, this is a fascinating cultural thing, right? So as you know, my husband, so my husband is an American citizen, but he grew up as a resident in Argentina. And as such, he uh, received his higher education at medical school down there to the tune of about, wait for it about 150 dollars a year a year Gerardi but he went of course down there as you go straight from high school into an extended program um, that allowed him to graduate with a medical degree now he couldn't practice in the U.S. until he came here and did um, you know extensive study and research at Yale University and then eventually his residency and fellowship and now he's a fully you know board certified surgeon but it's fascinating because we've been, um, you know, it, it's medical professionals, um, of at whether you're a, a doctor or a nurse or I mean, people they lots and lots of debt there. And my husband is constantly there. There are two things he feels awe and just utter disgust and annoyance at my student loan debt. <laughs> like he's always like, "How is it that you still?" Oh, I'm thinking, wow, it's it's a cultural. This is a very. American. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I perceive this as a very American thing, and the and it's just a it's a normal thing. I can count on um, one hand the number of people. In fact, I think my husband is probably the only person I know that doesn't have some type of student loan debt, um, and and you know has a higher education. So you can understand why if we don't do something to fix this problem soon, people are going to continue to choose as they seem to be at higher rates not to pursue higher education or to pursue it in different forms, uh, because the next generation, I think, is looking to us and saying, what What are you getting in return for that? You know, like, <laughs> are you going to be, I always tell my, I always tell my husband, nope, I'm going to be paying these things until I'm like, got one foot in the grave, and then you'll feel better that it's paid off. So I don't know, Jarrah, but that's, thank you for that story. It's, it's a, it's an important one. We should be talking more about it. So this week, I'm I'm not going to talk about loan debt, but I'm going to. This is one that I find fascinating. As you know, Gerard, I am I'm really interested in early childhood education. I'm really interested in um, just to a certain extent how we don't talk about it I think enough in this country about what we're going to do to get kids um, prepared for K to twelve. This is a story about about kindergartners during the pandemic and about the precipitous precipitous decline in student enrollment of course we know that you know enrollment has dropped in public schools across this country as a result of the pandemic but for kindergarten students it really dropped and of course it's dropping most um, in communities where kids are less likely to for example have access to preschool so now as a result of this what we've got is a generation of kids who if you if you want to talk about that great grouping by age would be eligible to go into the first grade who have either have not had any formal schooling at all or have um had had some version of remote learning that a majority of parents are saying and this is in the new york times just did nothing for them and i want to attest that as a parent of a I was a, the parent of a kindergartner in 2020 when schools first closed in March of 2020. And as satisfied as we were with the way our private school pivoted to remote learning pretty, pretty rapidly and pretty effectively, I think, compared to the experiences that many folks had, I was very I was very, very dissatisfied with what my kindergartner was getting. And as you can imagine, Gerard, I was very quiet about it um but you know so it's just a really it's a really um tough spot for parents to be in and there there are a couple reasons right so it's in in enrollments are down in part because parents are still afraid um in many places because kids aren't eligible young kids aren't eligible for the vaccine yet so there are questions about what's school going to look like for these folks in the fall but they're also afraid of what's going to happen if my children of my child is missing out on even more schooling. And then of course, you know, we don't even have to mention that childcare crisis that this poses for so many families. It is really a difficult situation. And we're thinking about, you know, we keep talking about this whole generation of kids that is gonna be affected by the pandemic. But I think um, about our littlest ones when, as you know, as anybody that's been around really young kids knows, This is such an important time for their brains. (laughs) And then those brains are expanding and doing just the most interesting things. And I think even parents who try their best and do everything they can while working, while while raising older kids, while doing all of the things to give their kids the early literacy and numeracy, numeracy skills that they need, many parents are feeling just devastated by what they perceive to be. You know either really bad options or just an utter lack of options here for them um stuck between a rock and a hard place so to speak and i haven't met anybody yet who said like wow my kindergartner's virtual experience was amazing um you can't even get them to like sit still for lunchtime half the time let alone on zoom um i want to point out here gerard that there's one this article ends with such a great quote and it also makes me wonder why the author of the article didn't expand this and talk about giving parents more options. But and she's quoting a parent who's talking about her kindergartner that says, quote, I need a miracle at this point to get out of this apartment in this neighborhood. My kids deserve so much more. Um so of course with my choice lens always on, I'm thinking, wow, you know, what what would life be like if more options existed? for parents of all kids. And of course, you know, kindergartners as well. But for the majority of parents, you get what you get and you don't get upset in this situation. And I think it's gonna have devastating impacts in the years to come for our very youngest, youngest kids.
0: Well, this is a good story on two parts. One, we tend to forget about the kindergarten experience and what it means for so many students. Number two, for those of us who have children in school but who are not of age, uh, to be in kindergarten, we kind of forget how important that was, and that millions and millions of families uh, had to go through all the things you said. So, thanks for keeping that on the on the list for us. And uh, we'll see in, the, in I guess the not too distant future, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly as relates to that population.
1: I know it's a it's a scary thought. I, I certainly hope that you know, fingers crossed. Maybe we will get um, far more children back in school, one way or another. Uh, in September. I know a lot of kids are already back in school, and we're going to, I'm sure we'll be talking more about how that's going in, in recent weeks, especially because um, it's a lot of kids in the South who are back in school. I think their schools tend to open a little bit earlier, where, of course, we're seeing in some places uh, a rise in cases. So um, hoping that folks stay safe and keep learning because, boy, oh, boy, do we want those schools safely open if they can be. Um, okay, Gerard, we are going to take a really quick uh, musical interlude here and we're going to get our next guest on the line. We are going to be speaking with Christina Ariaga. She is um, formerly of the Beckett Fund and, um, and many, many other uh, interesting and important roles she has held. Just a fascinating person. We're going to be speaking with her right after this. Listeners, welcome back. Today we are with Christina Ariaga. She is the president of Intrinsic, a strategic communications firm. In 2016, the U.S. Congress appointed her to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where she was elected vice chair for two consecutive terms. Before the Commission, Ariaga was a member of the U.S. delegation to the UN Human Rights Commission, as well as the executive director of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, a nonprofit public interest law firm defending the freedom of religion of people of all faiths. Ariaga is the recipient of the 2017 Museum Free Expression Award. Other recipients that year were Apple CEO Tim Cook, ABC correspondent Martha Raditz, and civil rights champion John Lewis. Ariaga has appeared on the BBC, MSNBC, C-SPAN, CNN, and NPR. Her writing includes op-eds published in USA Today in the Hill, and she has lectured at numerous academic institutions. Christina has a master's degree from Georgetown and is reading for her doctor of philosophy at the Oxford Law Faculty at Oxford University. Christina Ariaga, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on
1: we're we're very excited to have you here today always have such interesting guests on this show and you are you are right at the top what a what a fascinating background that we're eager to dig to dig into um so and i, I want to start i want to start a little bit from the beginning as they say so your father fled castro's communist revolution in cuba and your german mother spent time in a concentra- in, in a concentration camp you grew up in puerto rico Um, with not much money, but as you've put it, a very strong sense of faith. Would you share with our listeners how your family's experiences taught you to cherish the fight for religious liberty and inform what
2: you do today? Well, like many immigrant families, we came to this country uh, and felt very lucky to have the richness of freedom, but we didn't have many material possessions. Uh, My father had left Cuba once his brother and his best friend had been arrested by the Castro police. Uh, he waited for his, all his relatives to leave. He was the youngest in the family and then waited until his nanny who had essentially raised him could leave. I don't know if people realized but at the beginning of the Castro revolution, um, Afro-Cubans were not allowed to leave the island. So my father had to pull a lot of strings for his Afro-Cuban nanny to leave. My mother, on the other hand, had emigrated from Germany to Cuba, and she had had great difficulties in Germany, having spent some time in camps and having endured uh, quite a bit of suffering. In fact, her sister had died of starvation while the war was going on. So my mother and my father at the time were dating and my father told her, don't leave, Uh, this is all gonna blow over. My mother instead said, been there, done that, I am leaving and was among the first uh, cadre of Cubans that were able to leave the island because she obtained a job in the United States. My father soon thereafter realized that the Castro regime had no intention to leave soon and he arrived in Miami where he married my mother when they met, they were both from well-to-do families, and when they married, they didn't have two cents to rub together. So my mother used to say, "I met him as a rich man and married him as a poor man." In Miami, they had two children, and my father's plan was to learn English uh, by watching uh, the 1950s comedy "I Love Lucy." <laughs> the comedy featured, yeah, oh yes, it's amazing. <laughs> The comedy featured Lucille Ball, who in real life was married at the time to a Cuban man, Desi Arnaz. And a lot of the dialogue was in Spanish and my father thought he could learn English. However, he soon found out that uh, a comedy was not a reliable source information. Mm -hmm. We all moved to Puerto Rico where rich people temporarily without any money. And that's what my father used to say, we don't have any money, but it's just a tool, we'll get it. And meanwhile, We wore the same shoes for many years. Everything was a hand-me-down. My mother depended largely on the generosity of her neighbors to make ends meet. And my father worked seven days a week in the 60s and the 70s. Eventually, he was able to regain his fortune and put the three of us through college. But certainly, it wasn't without a certain scarcity of material goods. But I never felt poor. I never felt lacking. I never, ever felt that I was missing out on anything. I just felt fortunate. And what was it
1: about your parents' story and indeed your own story that really led you
2: to your work in defending religious liberties? My parents' life was one of mindset. External circumstances were things that were happening, not things that were happening to us. In other words, my father, whenever we came home from school and complained about anything, it was incredibly hot in Puerto Rico and there were no air conditioners and we all had very little in terms of books and there was only one library. And whenever we complained about it, my father would always say, are you stronger than your problem or is that problem stronger than you are? Let us, my siblings and I have uh, talked about this recently The fact that we could not overcome in spite of any difficulty was not something we allowed ourselves to dwell on. And that led me in high school and later on in college and when I was studying Christianity and religion and human suffering, that led me to question, what is it? What is it that allows us to overcome the most horrible circumstances, the Holocaust concentration camps, genocide, how come some people survive and thrive and become resilient and other people don't? And of course, if you read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, you find that individuals who are motivated by seeking meaning are equipped to handle things that defy their physical presence and their physical abilities. And that inspired me to dedicate my life and, and my professional life to defending people's right to search for the truth. And once they found that truth, whether it takes them took them to organize religion or no religion at all, to be able to live in the way that their deeply held convictions guided them without government interference. Mm.
1: So, you, you, you've, you're talking to us about um, helping people defend the right to live um, according to their faith, according to their principles, according to what fulfills them. And um, when you were executive director of the Beckett Fund. You honored the life and career of somebody who did just that, um, your friend Armando Valladere, the, the Cuban-American poet, diplomat, and activist. Now, he spent 22 years in Castro's prisons because he refused to put an I'm with Fidel sign on his desk at work. Can you tell us more about this courageous person, his stand in your relationship with him, Why you why you felt so compelled to honor him in
2: that way? Yes, uh, Armando Valladares was one of the first people I met when I first came to Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. He had just published a book, his memoirs, and the New York Times had made it a bestseller, or I should say it was a New York Times bestseller, and his book was eventually translated into dozens of languages. I met him when I was working for the Cuban American National Foundation, and he reaffirmed my thinking about this inner light that we have when we're able to exercise our religious freedom. And even when we cannot, uh, he spent eight years in solitary confinement, naked in Castro's Gulags. And I once asked Armando, how did you survive? I mean, I know, I I read your book Against All Hope, Uh, But it almost sounds fictional. I just cannot believe it. And he said, I wrote exactly what I did, is I recreated the miracle of Genesis in that cell. I was able to create worlds inside of me that transcended the physical torture that I was enduring, the physical torture that tens of thousands of men and women were enduring in Cuba. And that's how he survived. It's an amazing story. I wanna take it to the current moment for a little bit because
1: you're talking about your family's experience in Cuba, your friend's experience in Cuba. And today we're hearing a lot about Cuba in the news again. I mean, of course, circumstances of the pandemic and, and economic breakdown in so many places. But Cuba is back in the news for a lot of reasons. Many Cubans are out in the streets again demonstrating for basic rights and, and liberty that so many of us here take for granted. Can you talk about the current situation? And because we are a show that is geared toward education, uh, education policy, and teachers, could you explain how you would have teachers and students um, learn about and think about not only the situation in Cuba, but but this country's relationship to Cuba?
2: The greatest public relationist, if you can, if I'm making up the word, the greatest public relations uh, professional in the world in the 20th century was Fidel Castro, I have no doubt. He was able to marry the world's disdain and hatred for the United States with a persona that he created and that was adored and revered by many people around the, the world. And you see this every day when you get on a, on a bus and you see someone with a Che Guevara t-shirt. Che Guevara, who was one of Fidel Castro's uh, comrades and partners in crime, murdered thousands of men, women, and children. The fact that he's still idolized in movies and in books as a defender of freedom is an affront to the lives of all those people who gave their life for for freedom and and for the freedoms that we now enjoy and we do take for granted. So my advice to teachers is to look at what happened when Fidel Castro took over. Within a few months, he had incarcerated tens of thousands of people uh, for a number of reasons, because they were religious, because they were homosexual because they appeared to be homosexual, because they would not put a sign on their desk that said, I am with Fidel, like Fidel, like Armando Valladares, who was a 22 year old poet and an artist who was working at the post office to make ends meet. And take a look at what happened afterwards. In 1980, many years after the 59 revolution, when, Cuba opened its borders, over 130,000 people tried to flee. The Cuban embargo and the fact that the Cubans, I'm sorry, blame the US embargo on all of their trials and tribulations is a fallacy. Every other country trades with Cuba. Cubans still have a ration card. Cubans are only allowed once a week to consume four ounces of meat or to buy in the market four ounces of meat. It is a poor country and people are fed up. And that's why they have changed. And you see that in the slogans and the streets and you see that in the music that has been created after what has happened. They've traded Castro's patria o muerte, homeland or death to homeland and life. Cubans want to live and enjoy the freedoms that they are so, that they so richly deserve by the fact that they are born with human dignity. And right now is the time for the country of Cuba to step up and the people of Cuba to step up, but for countries around the world to not side with a dictator like Fidel Castro, as they have had, as they have done repeated times, but to side with the people of Cuba who deserve much better than what they have had for the last 50 some years.
0: So, Christina, let's take what you just said about freedom and put it in an international context. So you've led the Beckett Fund, as uh, Kara had uh, mentioned earlier, and you've done work with international um, groups, including um, several international commissions for religious freedom. Could you talk to us about some of your work in this area, as well as how should we as Americans who are involved in education and public policy, how should we think about educating ourselves, our families and others? about understanding and respecting the religious rights of our fellow citizens.
2: In 2016, I was named by Congress. I had the great privilege of being named by Congress to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, a position that required uh, nine independent commissioners to travel around the world and represent the views of the United States on freedom of religion or belief or religious freedom in other countries. The United States is still the beacon of the world for all freedoms, including religious freedom. And all over the world, I met with individuals and human rights activists and governments who admire greatly the fact that we have the most pluralistic country in the world, and yet we don't kill each other simply because we disagree about our religious beliefs. Of course, we're not a perfect country and there are issues with many religious groups in the United States, but the law does not condone those issues. Our laws exist to protect the ability of individuals to live according to their deeply held convictions. And that is an important thing to recognize that religious freedom is not about religion, It's not about who God is. Religious freedom is about who we are as human beings. Religious freedom does not protect religion. Religious freedom protects the individual. Religious freedom protects humans. What has happened in the United States and abroad is that there has been a campaign that is influenced by many complex factors to make religious freedom the little sister of the human rights community or the eccentric uncle of the human rights community. Religious freedom regrettably has weaponized and used in many countries and in the United States as well as a tool to obtain something. But that type of thinking about religious freedom erodes each person's ability to be able to change their religion, to be able to say, I want to attend church or a synagogue. I want to be able to go to a mosque. I want to be able to explore different religions. I want to be able to have no religion at all. That is what religious freedom is about. And what I found in all of my travels around the world was that individuals and communities look to the United States for guidance, we're still a very important influence in what people think and they believe about human rights. And religious freedom is something that we have done really well. Of course, we will ha- we have had our hiccups. And of course, we have had horrible things happen in this country in the name of religion. But overall, our laws, our constitution, our legislatures, our government officials, have understood the importance of religious freedom as a principle and a vital right, a vital part of being in a democratic society.
0: You just provided one of the best definitions I've heard for religious liberty. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. So let me turn back to Fidel Castro. So October of last year, you authored an op-ed in USA Today, and you were talking about cancel culture in the United States. And here's what you wrote. Fidel Castro created the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution, known as CDR. And it was a network of neighborhood volunteers uh, set up on each block. And CDR members would actually earn social privileges if they would rat out their neighbors who were quote unquote, insufficiently revolutionary. Would you share with our audience why you view America's current shift toward speech codes and political correctness and cancel culture as being similar or even dangerous to the exchange of ideas in a country that was built upon the idea of freedom. Yes,
2: in 1944, Learned Hand, who was a judge, wrote a fantastic essay, The Spirit of Liberty, an essay that should really be mandatory reading for all Americans. And in that essay, he says, and I paraphrase, liberty lives in the hearts of men and women, and when it dies there, no law, no court can do much about it. And the story I tell is a cultural story. I start by talking about the fact that in 1980s, and you hear my accent, I still have a Hispanic accent. In the 1980s, when I went to college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, The first week I was called a racial slur, but because I learned English from Catholic nuns, I had no idea what racial slurs were about. I didn't know it was a racial slur. And I thought it was a cool nickname, like Maverick in Top Gun or something like that. So it wasn't until a few weeks later that someone told me that was not a cool nickname, it was a racial slur. So I went, I walked down the hallway, visit my hallmate, who had called me that I knocked on her door and I told her I was hurt and offended and why had she called me that and we had a great conversation and again I can't say we became great friends this is not a movie this is real life but we were able to understand each other in a way that would not have been possible had I resorted to the 2020 version of cancel culture it would have been my quote unquote right to cancel her and shame her. And she didn't know any better. She, it was I was the first Latina she had ever met. So that reminded me of the fact that I grew up in a family where we could talk about anything and we could disagree about politics. And in the end, the moral consensus was that we were a family and we would go through this journey together and that we would be able to talk about these things. And what I'm seeing now is tearing of the fabric of the American people. I like to give this example to young students. I talk about the fact that in the United States, when I first came, I witnessed a little bit of what I consider a miracle, which is that people stop at a stop sign, whether there's a police officer or not, and people stop at a stoplight whether there's a police officer or not. In parts of Puerto Rico, when I grew up there, the traffic lights were the colors, the flag of Italy were at most a strong suggestion. And I love the Puerto Rican people. So, and I'm sure many of them would agree with me that this was the culture. So laws do not change the culture. Culture changes the laws. And it's really important to address and get rid of this culture of this cancel culture where when we disagree with someone, where we're offended, the person who's most offended wins the argument. I don't want to live in my head alone. I don't want to live in a country where we cannot have genuine discourse.
0: When you mentioned learned hand, brought to mind two things. One, he was actually a student of William James at Harvard. Who was one of the founders of pragmatism in the United States, and Learned Hand is also called one of America's most significant uh, juridical philosophers, and as someone who studied philosophy, I try to give people who study that uh, that subject a shout out wherever I can. Let me turn to my last question. Here's from your op-ed when you were further going on about. Uh, politics. You said, quote, a survey published by Politico revealed that cancel culture is largely driven by younger people. Although 49% of voters overall said cancel culture had a somewhat or fully negative impact, 55% of voters aged 18 to 34 say they actually have taken part in canceling culture with individuals and institutions they found offensive. So why do you think so many young Americans are drawn to cancel culture? and what should parents, teachers, professors do to address this without narrowing public debate?
2: I think that the idea of cancel culture emerges largely out of fear of rejection. And by the way, um, the the piece I wrote for USA Today went viral, but then Twitter censored it because it contained quote unquote sensitive um, subjects, which I found quite interesting. This idea that we have to fear someone else's idea is detrimental to our society. There are two great books that should also be mandatory reading. One is The Cuddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. In it, they outline the provenance of this cancel culture and what to do about it in learning in educational institutions. And the other one is a 2021 release called The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan Rauch in which he talks about the fact that for the first 200,000 years of humanity, we killed each other when we disagreed. But once we start thinking about theories and ideas and hypotheses, we start to kill each other's hypotheses. And that's how we get to the great scientific discoveries of all time. And that's how we have countries emerge like the United States. Uh, And those exceptional discoveries are only possible when we can kill each other's ideas rather than kill each other. I think that we have created a generation of young Americans who view offense as a way to lose strength instead of gain it, who view differences as a root of fragility and who view themselves so fragile that they could never endure something that is disagreeable. That is exactly the opposite of what Armando Valladares did and showed when he survived 23 years in prison in Cuba. That is the opposite of what our founding fathers endured when they signed the Declaration of Independence, essentially signing their own death sentence. And if you look throughout history at individuals that you admire that changed the world, they have something in common, and that is that they were not afraid to disagree with the prevalent social order. So sadly, we are now raising a generation that may feel like they're challenging the social order, but instead they're conforming to it. And this is counter to what this country is about.
0: I really enjoyed a lot of what you had to say. Um, And I really wish uh, listeners would take away the idea of how important it is to look at what you're sharing through the lens of an international perspective. I've had a chance to travel to different countries and different hemispheres, and each place has its own beauty, its own challenges. But the one thing I come back with from every trip is understanding how free we are as a people with all of our challenges, with all our, you know, the dynamics that make us interesting. We have freedoms that other people wish they could inhale, but cannot. So thank you for the work you do.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for the work you
0: do. And my tweet of the week comes from at Cotter Reporter. It is from August 5th, and here's what it says. State officials in Massachusetts said that they actually told Boston Public School leaders about Superintendent Brenda Casalius' looming license lap months ago. And they're now waiting for a waiver request from the district so that she can stay on as superintendent. As many of you may know, and some of you may not know, in certain school systems, be it state or local, you actually need a license in order to practice your craft as a public school leader. And this is the case in Boston and the current superintendent's license has lapsed. So that is my tweet of the week.
1: I have to just really quick comment, George, since um, as you know, all things Boston, I feel like I have to weigh in on. There's an interesting article in the Globe about this where she sort of said, eh, you know, I've been managing a pandemic and uh, let's just call it what it is, a challenged school system in many, many ways. And there was a part of me that thought, Yeah, it probably wasn't the top of your priority list to make sure that this licensure um, didn't lapse. But still, at the same time, sort of a tough thing for our Boston public schools. I think it'll be taken care of. Is that something, Gerard, that in your various roles as, as commissioner and leader, you had to keep a strict eye on?
0: Yes. I did not have either for the roles that I had, but there were people within the state who did.
1: Yeah, I mean, we got to do what we got to do, I suppose, as unpleasant as, I, as it might be sometimes, but I'm sure she'll be taking care of that real soon. Okay, Gerard, um, we're going to be back next week with Edie Hirsch. Uh, we both know him, and, and he's real close to you, right? He's, he's at least down your way. He is the founder and chairman of the Poor Knowledge Foundation, professor emeritus at the University of Virginia, and of course, um, author of books that probably if you have studied education in any way shape or form you you know about and i hope have read Uh, the first is of course cultural literacy what every american needs to know and how to educate a citizen the power of shared knowledge to unify a nation always look forward to conversations with professor hirsch so gerard until then um have a great week Uh, be safe be happy keep us apprised of any trips and i will let you know if indeed I ever am driving on the road out your way, so you'll you'll just know to stay home at that time.
0: Well, no, I would be shocked that you're in a car and not your private plane. It's okay <laughs> to be transparent with our listeners, but if you yeah. want to go ahead and act like you're one of the regular people, yes, I look forward one day Pioneer to
2: having
1: Institute. to
0: see you try to swerve <laughs> me off the road.
1: <laughs> Pioneer Institute always wants to make sure that we're well taken care of. Um, thank you, thank you, Jim Sturtis. I'm sure he'll, he'll <laughs> love that. Anyhow, Gerard, you take care, my friend. Be well, and I'll talk to you next week.
0: Talk to you next week.
1: Bye.